In five hours' time, the biggest rail strike in 30 years will begin. Is it a genuine plea to give workers better pay and better conditions, or is it class warfare? Arthur Scargill's style from 1984. We will debate that tonight and get your views on it too. And joining me for Talking Pints, Seb Payne, a journalist who's just written a book about why Labour lost the Red Wall and maybe some big lessons in it for both Boris Johnson and indeed Sir Keir Starmer. But all of that comes after the news. Good evening. Thanks, Nigel. The RMT union has confirmed then that rail strikes will go ahead from tomorrow after last-minute talks failed to resolve a dispute over pay, jobs and conditions. The industrial action will be the biggest in almost 30 years, with 40,000 staff walking out tomorrow on Thursday and then again on Saturday. The RMT union general secretary Mick Lynch says the government's decision to cut funding from the railway network is the source of the strikes. Faced with such an aggressive agenda of cuts to jobs, conditions, pay and pensions, the RMT has no choice but to defend our members industrially and to stop this race to the bottom. The strikes on network rail, the train operators and London Underground will go ahead and we again call on our members to stand firm, support the action, mount the pickets and demonstrate their willingness to fight for workplace justice. Well, the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, told the Commons this afternoon only 20% of planned services are going to be operating, causing problems for millions of passengers. My message, Mr Speaker, to the workforce is straightforward. Your union bosses have got you striking under false pretences. And rather, and rather than protecting your jobs, they are actually endangering them and the railway's future. And on top of that, criminal barristers in England and Wales, we understand, have also voted to strike next week. That's over concerns about legal aid funding. The walkouts come at a time of significant court case backlogs. Other sectors also seeing strikes this summer are two teaching unions. They're threatening to ballot their members as well. The National Education Union saying teachers' pay has fallen by 20% in real terms since 2010. They're demanding a pay rise that's more in line with inflation. Well, away from the strikes, Heathrow Airport has asked airlines today flying from Terminals 2 and 3 to cancel 10% of scheduled services. The decision comes after technical issues caused huge pile-ups of passengers' luggage at the airport. EasyJet also announced it's cutting thousands of summer flights to avoid last-minute cancellations. And the move is also in response to caps imposed by Gatwick Airport and Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport. Energy companies will be prevented from charging high direct debits under plans put forward by the regulator, Ofgem. The proposals also include rules to protect customers' credit balances and green levy payments if a company goes bust. Suppliers will also be required to have enough money set aside for future energy price hikes. You're up to date on TV, online and on your radio via DAB+. You are with GB News, where now it's time for Farage. Good evening. In five hours' time, the biggest rail strike in 30 years begins. Uh, but it's not just a rail strike, because we've now got teachers talking possibly about strikes later in the year. We've got postal workers possibly talking about strikes. We've got parking attendants possibly talking about strikes. I knew there had to be an upside somewhere in there. Uh, but it's very interesting, because I completely understand how families out there are struggling. It's 100 quid to fill the car. Goodness only knows what the electricity bill and gas bill will come to in the autumn of this year. Food prices, all the lot. Inflation, out of control, mismanaged hopelessly by the Bank of England. Inflation due to hit 11%. And, of course, naturally, 
people want to stay at least where they are in life, hence the demand for pay. The RMT wants a 10% pay rise. The RMT wants a guarantee that no jobs will be lost, despite the fact that many fewer people are now using the railways than there were before the pandemic. So I understand, on the one hand, that basic human desire not to go backwards. But the truth is, we learnt in the 1970s that once that disease of inflation has set in, wage inflation can keep the whole thing going for longer and indeed make it spiral out of control. So my own view is the demands of the RMT are just unrealistic, much as I sympathise with families out there that are struggling to pay their bills. But the language of Mick Lynch over the weekend reminded me of a chap in 1984 called Arthur Scargill. He was all out for class war. I think Mick Lynch is as well. He seems to be encouraging a general strike. Do you know, we haven't had one of those since 1926. So I feel this is as much about politics, bringing down a Tory government, as it is about improving the lives of his members. That's how I feel about this. Tell me what you think. Do you think this is an attempt at class warfare? Farage at gbnews.uk. Mind you, when you think that the criminal barristers bar are going on strike, well, they're certainly not engaged in class war, although many of them, as young barristers, would love to earn what a train driver does, because with overtime, they can earn about £70,000 a year. Well, my first guest earns more than that, but not much more than that as a Member of Parliament. Uh, and Lloyd Russell-Moyle, your MP for Brighton, Kemp Town and Peacehaven. Mm -hmm. So I make the point that a train driver with overtime can earn about 70000 a year. That's not an uncommon amount of money. They're still stuck with 35-hour working weeks. We're still stuck with a 1919 rule that Sundays are somehow overtime and not part of the normal 35 hours. And it's all well and good, Nick Lynch saying, look, we want this, we want that, we want the other. But it doesn't seem he's prepared to get the union to come into the 21st century. Well, first of all, train drivers are not striking this week. On the whole, train drivers are represented by Aslef. Yep. And as if it's not balanced to strike. So one could argue maybe that they are, at the moment, satisfied, although I'm sure that they will also be feeling the squeeze. Well, the tube drivers, the, yes. the, the tube but, drivers are yeah. on strike yes. tomorrow, yeah. and they are drivers, yeah. and they're earning that kind of money. Well, uh, so, uh, so the, there's the, a the, lot of drivers the, yes. on strike tomorrow. The average worker on strike tomorrow yep. will be earning £31,000 a year, about 200 quid less than the average wage in this country. So the average worker striking tomorrow will be slightly less, uh, earning slightly less than the average worker in this country. And a large number of those people, some of them will be earning more, of course, mm. but a large number of them will be cleaners, they will be um, station attendants, they will be people who are on very low wages, if not just slightly only above the national minimum wage. So there is a problem for some of those workers, but there is a bigger problem here around safety on the railways. Now, the passenger numbers have returned to about 83% on the railways, yeah. according to the latest figures this month. Depends where you look at it, but yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they yes. are down. But, but they are down about yeah. 20%. Now, in Wales, the RMT and the Welsh Government got round the table with the train drivers and negotiated, and they negotiated a deal that would see a protection for employment for a period of transition, by the end of the transition there might be changes but for the period of transition no compulsory redundancies allowing people to move into other areas of the railway so that people's livelihoods can be protected but you can have modernization and they agreed a percentage of course that wasn't the initial asking point of RMT but they negotiated a percentage if we look at it here yes, in England but Mick Lynch Mick Lynch does not want to negotiate with Tories well, the, Mick Lynch put forward I mean, that's the, the problem RMT, isn't it well, uh, or uh, part uh, of the problem no I don't think that is the problem he's been asking to negotiate he's, with conservatives he's been asking to negotiate with conservatives of, of course that is he's, the, he's been utterly party political throughout all of well, this he's, he's, he's also condemned parts of the Labour Party as well. So, so let's, well, let's, 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 let's be clear. How can you, he, con he, he, right, how can you condemn the Labour Party? I don't know what the Labour Party's position is. Well, I mean, what's your position? My position is that the strike shouldn't have gone ahead because the government should have negotiated, but the government put but given that the union has. the government put the union in an invidious position. The train operators and the government only came forward with a counter-proposal yesterday. 
Now that is no way, after three weeks' notice, to negotiate a strike. I remember when we had the bin strike in Brighton. The mm. Greens stood back and they said, this is for the officers and the managers to negotiate, nothing to do with us. And in the end, it required us and the Conservatives to force the Greens to get round the table, get a mediator in, and that's how we stop the bin strikes. You stop it through negotiation with political but the and politicians. Party position and the on Conservatives this. are refusing to get round the table, well, and well, it might take well, us to force them to get round the table. There's a lot of criticism of the Conservative Party, yeah. but I have no idea what your party's policy is. Is that no our view is that the Conservatives, just like when no, the no, Greeks, no, no. should what's get your, round the table what's your and they should negotiate do you a deal support, do you like as a party, Wales. Do you as a party support mm -hmm. people going on strike tomorrow? Well, I think they have been left with no other choice. I would prefer so that they. Do. I would prefer that they didn't. But at the moment, the government refusing to negotiate means that that, that that without any other choices, they are, of course, inevitable. That is a real shame. So I will support them. Of course, I will support those individual workers right. who are making okay. that no, difficult choice. That. But I want it to end as soon as possible, and that's how you negotiate. The government is going to try to stop wage inflation. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the yeah. 1970s in my talk in yeah. earlier. It didn't really matter whether it was Wilson mm -hmm. or Heath in office. The wage demands kept coming in from strong unions and inflation kept going and kept spiraling. 10% is the starting point of the negotiation. All the RMT are asking to stop the strike is an agreement that there will be no compulsory redundancies while the restructuring process and modernisation in the railways happens. Now, that is not a hard well, demand to meet. That is not a demand for high... Are they prepared to modernise? Are they prepared to get rid of the 35-hour week? Well, in Wales... In Wales, they have discussed that and they have agreed a pathway to modernisation, and it is the same leadership in England. I don't see why they wouldn't agree something very similar, but it requires decent people to get round the table and negotiate, and at the moment, they've asked the government to negotiate, and they have refused to attend we the We will ask Paul Scully, Minister for I'm London, sure that very will. question in a few moments' time. Lloyd, if we apply this principle mm -hmm. to postal workers, yes. to school teachers, to throughout the entirety of to barristers, the yes. public sector, and even in the private sector, um, I mean, Nick Lynch says he's not against a general strike. We've not had one of those since 1926. Mm -hmm. Do you think, with inflation going into double digits and if pay rises stuck at 2%, would it be justified to have a general strike? Well, I, I would think that we should be doing everything we possibly can to avoid a general strike, and I'm not sure that that would be helpful, although if the worst comes to the worst, you can never rule anything out. But I would be doing everything to prevent that because it is catastrophic for this country. But let's be clear, there is another route out of this. The government, like other governments around the world, could have properly capped energy prices. They could have stopped these huge profits that are uh, being made. Capping energy they, prices is a disaster. They, well, it's not true. It's a that's total what, that's, disaster. That's what's happened in other, I mean, I what's happened in other parts of the world. Come back another time and that's debate what, energy. Other parts of the world. And I'd that love is, to do that. That is the acorn. Okay. And the Bank of England said this. That is the acorn of inflation. What we need to do is get rid of the kernel of inflation that we have at the moment. And that will also reduce well, the demands for wage Excessive government money creation across the Western world is the kernel of inflation. Come, Maybe. But come back another time well, and let's debate, debate it. <laughs> let's you. debate it. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And as I said, in a moment, Paul Scully, MP and Minister for London, will come on and defend the government's position. But before I get back to this story about strikes, you may have noticed that uh, I don't generally cover on this show issues around transgenderism very much at all, but I did talk about Leah Thomas. Leah Thomas was that six-foot-three swimmer in America, previously rated about 500th in the world, um, and then she started winning events as a woman. And, frankly, uh, it just looked ridiculous. It just seemed to be completely and utterly unfair. And I was strongly of the view, you know, why would young girls all over the world get up at five or six in the morning to go and train if they felt this sort of thing could happen to them. Unfair competition. Well, to her credit, Sharon Davis, who won a silver medal at the Olympics 40 years ago, Sharon Davis was one of the loudest voices on this, and overnight we have had a ruling, and the World Swimming Authorities have said, FINA have said, that nobody, nobody that has gone through male puberty even if they now identify as a woman, will be free to compete in swimming, in, in, in international, certainly, swimming events. And that strikes me as being a victory for just good, plain 
common sense. Otherwise, what on earth would the future of women's sport be? Well, joining me is Joanne Harper, visiting fellow for transgender athletic performance at Loughborough University, also a transgender athlete and former advisor to the International Olympic Committee. Uh, Joanna, good evening. Good evening. Now, this is not about, this is not about discriminating against a group of people who've made lifestyle choices. This is about sport being fair for women, and in particular, not taking away the incentive of young people to have their dreams and to pursue their sport. And that's why, to me, it looked like a victory for common sense. What say you? Um, I'm disappointed in this ruling. Uh, the suggestion that trans women are on the verge of taking over women's sports is, is simply not true. Uh, for instance, FINA just made this rule uh, essentially banning trans women from women's category in international competition. But no trans woman in history has ever competed at that level. So, you know, they're putting in this ban that doesn't ban anyone currently. Um, additionally, at the NCAA level, which you mentioned, um, <clears throat> there are over 200,000 women competing every year in NCAA sports. Uh, trans people make up a half, 1% of the population. There should be 1,000, 2,000 trans women competing every year. This rule that the NCAA put in was 11 years old, and there are only a handful of trans women who are competing. So, so trans women aren't taking over, they aren't winning disproportionately, and so I don't see a need for this particular rule. But when you see the photographs of Leah Thomas, six foot three, you know, with the bone structure and the build of a, of a pretty big man, a pretty big male that has gone through puberty, that has now re-identified as a woman. Uh, can you imagine if you were a female swimmer trying to compete and losing races to Leah Thomas? Can you imagine the upset for people that have perhaps trained and worked at their swimming for years? It's just not fair, is it? Leah Thomas is actually listed at 6'2", not 6'3", a minor difference. But Missy Franklin, uh, a champion American female swimmer, is also 6'2". So, um, you know, the optics... Yeah, but not with... Uh, hang on, hang on. That, that, that may be true, but we're talking about a male body that has gone through puberty. It is a very different body in terms of bone structure and, indeed, muscle mass as well. Um, muscle mass is significantly decreased with uh, trans, uh, transgender hormone therapy. Uh, aerobic capacity is greatly decreased. Uh, there are also disadvantages that trans women face. Their larger bodies are now being powered by reduced muscle mass, reduced aerobic capacity, and that can actually lead to disadvantages uh, in terms of quickness, recovery, endurance. And so what you really want to see is you want to see data on what happens with transgender athlete, women, athletes, after they've been on hormone therapy, and how well do they as a group participate or compete? The data is sadly lacking. At this point. All right. Uh, well, well I, you know, I can't comment on the science of that. But a final thought. Um, the swimming authorities have said they will now have an open category. But I guess the truth of it is, so few people would compete, it would become quite meaningless, wouldn't it? It's, it's hard to say. It, it, I, I certainly am skeptical about the success of the open category, but I, I'm willing to at least let them see where this goes. But, but I have the same concerns that you do. Yeah, OK, Joanna, thank you very much indeed for joining me this evening here on GB News. And you see, folks at home, we do the best to make sure you hear both sides of the argument. You know what my view is, but we always try and give you a contrary view. But I'm sure you at home have made your own minds up. In a moment, we'll be joined by Paul Scully, MP, Minister for London. And we'll ask him the question, should the government have done more? And there was a big shock, very big shock in France in the elections last night. We'll tell you all about it.
Coming up on The Mark Stein Show, we have an exclusive on the fight for justice for the vaccine injured and bereaved. Vicky Spit returns to reveal a major update. As Julian Assange's extradition is approved, his brother Gabriel joins to tell Mark how he's now turning to the Australian government for help after being let down by Pretty Patel. Plus, as the Home Office put plans for a new migrant camp in Linton on Ooze on hold, local campaigner Olga Matias will open up about what could be the first step in securing victory for her and her fellow villagers. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show tonight at 8 o'clock. So is Mick Lynch of the RMT trying to stir up class warfare or are these strikes beginning in a few hours' time? Justified your reactions to that question. Nick says no. Scargill wanted a strike for the sake of it. These strikes are happening because we have a government that has crashed the economy and left people worse off with huge taxes. I suspect that a lot of those striking tomorrow are not paying higher taxes if they're, if they're at the lower end of the income scale. Doug says, no, it is not class warfare. Do not mix unions with working class. I am working class and hate unions. Doug, that's a great point. Mick Lynch was kind of trying over the weekend, I felt, to say that he was speaking of, of, on behalf of the entirety of British working class people. One viewer says, even the Labour Party are not in favour of the rail strike, but they, like a lot of people, are fed up of the inaction by the government who are politicising it. Well, this is one of Keir Starmer's criticisms. One viewer says, why are the government just standing by and watching the public struggle even more? Taxes, inflation, now this. Well, interesting. Uh, you know, your reactions to that thus far, uh, yeah, are pretty critical of the government. Now, Grant Shapps, of course, is the Transport Secretary. Uh, he's been talking over, over the course of the last week and telling us what a disaster this will be. It'll mean missed operations, missed hospital appointments, uh, people missing funerals, weddings. It will be a massive inconvenience and it will cost some people, particularly those who are self-employed, a great deal of money. Should Shaps have done more? Is it a job of government? to get involved in these sort of things. Well, that was the charge being put by Lloyd Russell Moyle, MP, who was here a few minutes ago. Although, when I tried to push him as to what Labour's position really was, I don't quite know that I really understood the answer. Well, joining me is Paul Scully, MP, Minister for London and Small Business, and Conservative MP for Sutton and Cheam. Good evening. Good evening to you. So, four and a half hours to go. Biggest strike for 30 years, and the way they've staggered it, very cynically, with three different days, and that really puts a week out, and, and all the rest of it. And, and I've been, you know, I've been very critical of, of the fact that they're stuck on 35-hour weeks, a, a 1919 rule around Sundays. I mean, need to get with the modern times. But do your opponents have a point when they say that Shaps could have done more? Could have tried to intervene. I'm not sure that's fair because uh, it is always a risk of politicising this, which we've seen from some of the rhetoric, uh, not just from the Labour Party but from the RMT themselves, and it's that's really regrettable. They just should get round the table with the employers of those people that have got the dispute about pay, about the conditions, uh, the ticket offices, the Sunday working, the entire shift, missing an entire shift if you want a dentist appointment, for example, those kind of things. Because yeah. we want Spanish an efficient practices, as Spanish, we used to call absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, you and I, uh, we used to commute to the, uh, you know, you the city. I used to work in London Bridge yeah. and then the West End. You know, 30 odd years ago, when we had the last big strike like this, and we remember how inconvenient it was. And there is a whole generation that just don't remember that. And so it's so important that the that the unions get back to I the top. I understand that the argument. I, but, but but here we are. You know, and you're quite right to say that Mick Lynch is politicising this. You know, he, 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 when he uses the word Tory, it's kind of done with uh. venom, and I've seen that over the course of the weekend, and it, and it did remind me a bit of Scargill back in 84. But wouldn't you have shown yourselves as a government to be bigger people if well, you try to invite him in and sit yeah. him round the table? I mean, you would actually would have had, in my opinion, 
uh, the moral high ground. I understand, I understand the, the, the reasoning behind it, but the, at the end of the day, it's a dispute between the employer and the employee. And you heard First Group this morning, one of the train operating companies said, actually, there's no room for the government in this. This is a dispute between employer and employee. We need to be the ones negotiating it. And so, you know, I've, I've dealt with McLynch in the, with the P&O uh, situation, mm. that egregious mm. situation mm. that we saw some months ago. And again, I don't think there was much um, traction that was raised by, by, by talks uh, in that. And I'm not sure that Grant would have gotten too much further. So yeah, we can do it in theory, but I think to, the best way of doing it is to try, if you're gonna negotiate in good spirits, well, is to get enough. employer rather than employee but, rather than politicizing. But now we're talking about parking wardens, we're talking about mm. you know postal workers, teachers, and the sort of egging on of a general strike. The, I mean, language that's it's almost hard to believe. Yeah. But we're hearing it, but we are hearing it. Mm. And you know inflation's heading into double digits and pay rises at 2%, and people are very upset and very angry. They don't want to feel they're going backwards after being locked at home for the best part of two years. Um, you know, I remember those elections in 1974. It was the trade union movement that brought down a Conservative government. Are they going to do this to you again? Well, I think it, we've got to be really robust. We've got to uh, speak to the public sector and say, you know what, it's totally understandable that with energy costs uh, increasing so substantively, uh, with cost of living uh, increasing, the pressure's absolutely on. But what we uh, need to remind people is what happens if you have uh, these high pay uh, increases across the board over a period of time, it just ends up in a spiral of inflation. Everyone's forgotten it. Absolutely, which is why- Everyone's but, forgotten it. But this is why we've got to pull that back because we've had many you know, good times with low interest rates, low inflation for so many, so many years now. We've got to remind people of the risks of what happens to their mortgages and, and the cost of living over a series of months rather than a specifically a short term. General strike bring down bring down a conservative government. I'm not sure it bring down the government, but at the end of the day, this is all about jobs. This is all about people's livelihoods. And you get into a situation of a general strike, it's going to affect people on a long-term basis. It's for for a short-term. Um, uh, cry of frustration. I totally understand why people are concerned about their wage packets and the cost of living mm. issue, but that's why we've got to remind people of history, what, remind people of the economics of the situation, and remind people that we do need constraint, because that's the only way that we can keep people in okay. work, which is the best way of tackling the cost of living issue well, in the first place. As Minister for London, uh, Paul, tomorrow is going to be a very interesting day travelling around London. And that's why I've called the Mayor to actually waive the congestion charge, ULES, and actually pause any non-essential road works as well so that it, at least it helps some Londoners and is get that out and about. Well, that's in him at the end of the day. You know, we'll, 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 we'll see. I've called upon it. The AA have said the same. Uh, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Paul Scully, thank you very much indeed. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing about Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the hard leftist who's put together an electoral alliance with Greens and Communists in France. And the big story was they were going to challenge the Macron majority in the Assemblée Nationale. Funny, though, it's all turned out rather differently. And Peter Allen, freelance journalist in Paris, uh, joins me now to discuss what was a really big shock result. And I, I remember Marine Le Pen's party had, I think, zero seats in the Assemblée Nationale eight, nine years ago. Uh, but things last night have changed a bit, haven't they? That's right, Nigel. They had six uh, up until uh, the end of the last parliament. And now they've got 89, would you believe? And uh, they are considered a huge threat to uh, Emmanuel Macron's administration now, as are the Nukes Alliance. But something I can tell you straight away, Nigel, is that the Nukes Alliance, which is this left-wing alliance under Jean-Luc Mélenchon, is already falling apart. Yeah. Uh, they are set to meet uh, Emmanuel Macron at the Elysee Palace tomorrow, along, I have to say, with Marine Le Pen. And the idea was that uh, uh, Macron would say, look, we can all work together, we can all do something, please support me. But uh, as you'd imagine, with uh, an alliance of communists, socialists, ecologists, and other radicals, you're not going to get much consensus. So this idea that you're going to have this great opposition uh, working against uh, Macron in a unified way, as far as the left is concerned, probably isn't going to happen.
No, and they'd never, and they'd never ever work with Marine Le Pen, and we know that. I saw that in my years in the European Parliament. The really fascinating thing is that for the last 30 years or so, France has had the first past the post electoral system for the Assembly, and yet the results produced last night look a lot more like proportional representation. Just give British viewers a sense of the sheer collapse of the traditional socialist Labour Party in France and indeed the Conservatives? Well, there's two factors there. The number one fact, I would say, is your latter point there, Nigel. It's the collapse of the Gaullist Conservatives. The traditional party of government here in France, the Fifth Republic, was set up by Charles de Gaulle, and uh, he envisaged uh, a party in his name, really ruling France uh, for, for, from then onwards. And uh, that has effectively collapsed in sleaze. The last um, uh, president of the Gaullists was Nicolas Sarkozy. He's a twice convicted criminal now, subject to appeal for corruption charges. Uh, ditto um, uh, his prime minister as well. Um, so they are in all kinds of, Francois Fillon that is, they're in all kinds of uh, problems. Their vote has completely collapsed. And then of course you've got the socialists as well. Uh, the great, uh, I say great, simply because they, they were presidents, not because they were particularly great in themselves. But uh, François Mitterrand, of course, still revered here, but his was a disastrous presidency in the 1980s. And of course, Mitterrand was the last president before Macron to work with a hostile parliament. They had a system there called cohabitation, where he had to work with a prime minister who was ideologically opposed to him. Macron has, uh, has, has avoided that for the moment. There was some talk of Mélenchon becoming his prime minister. That's not happening for the moment. Anything is possible in the future. But a uh, terrible state. But as I say, I, I would say the number one point there is the collapse of the Gaullist Conservatives. Yes, the socialists have collapsed. François Hollande was a terrible president um, before uh, Macron, and his party hasn't done very, very well at all since then. But getting rid of the Gaullists, that's allowed uh, the far right, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen's party, to do very, very well indeed. They are now the right-wing opposition, and the Gaullists aren't. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Peter Allen, thank you, as ever, for that report from Paris. And, yes, a big shock result. Now, my What the Farage moment today. It's Stanley Johnson. It's the Prime Minister's father. And it's the whole relationship of the Johnson family with China. And I say this because all eyes, of course, are on Putin. He is the great evil one. And we've stopped hearing any criticism of China. Well, on his Instagram, Stanley Johnson posted this a couple of months ago. And it shows Stanley Johnson there with the Chinese ambassador, and it's all very cosy and all very friendly, and that's a dinner at Shea Johnson. And then last week, another picture was put up, and this time it's Stanley Johnson visiting the official Chinese residence. It's a really close relationship, and, you know, Early on in Boris's premiership, Johnson had been to the embassy and run a message back to number 10. Now, he was on Talking Pints with me last July, and I asked him this question about Hong Kong. So many, or, or, what about Hong Kong? What about Hong Kong? Come on, I mean, we, you know, that was a very important agreement that was made. Autonomy to 2047. They've broken it in every way, Stanley. Hong Kong, I've been going to Hong Kong since 1961. I understand completely, completely what you are saying. And of course, the 1997 agreement needs to be, needs to be respected. It's not being respected. Fine, fine. <laughs> there's no doubt other things which we're not doing. But there's no point in saying we're going to send our warships to take on the well, Chinese Navy. It doesn't make sense. No, Stanley, we're going to disagree on that. So the Prime Minister's father is outright an apologist for the way in which the Chinese Communist Party have behaved in Hong Kong and elsewhere. Boris's younger brother lives in Hong Kong as a successful property developer, appears to have no problems with Communist China. But most interestingly, Johnson himself, the PM, launched Project Defend a couple of years ago. That was to make us less reliant on Chinese imports. It would appear a letter from the Foreign Office Minister Lord Ahmed last week that that has now been dropped. 
Another quick What the Farage moment. St George, our patron saint, as you know, he slayed the dragon and he was then martyred, tortured and martyred as a Christian. And now those studying English literature at the University of East Anglia have been given a trigger warning and told that this story, this poem about the great English saint may, might find very upsetting. Goodness only knows. We're producing a generation wrapped in cotton wool. And a final what the farage, it's Joe Biden. Yes, the leader of the free world went out in Delaware at the weekend to show the American people how fit and vibrant he is. And there he was out there riding his bike at the weekend. Um, and well, he didn't fall asleep, but uh, it all went horribly wrong. There he is, down on the ground. He wasn't seriously hurt, thank goodness. But I tell you what, if he's the leader of the free world, well, maybe it's time we all had a drink. Talking of which, it'll be Talking Pints in any moment's time, and I'll be joined by Seb Payne, Financial Times journalist who's just written a book about how the Tories took those Red Wall seats. Yes, it's that time of the day. It's Talking Pines. I'm joined by Sebastian Payne, journalist. You work for The Spectator, The Telegraph. You're now at The Financial Times. You've written all sorts of things about me over the years, but you're, <laughs> you're still very welcome. Mostly decent things. Well, they weren't indecent. I'll say that. So there you are, a lad from the northeast of England, coming from Brexit backing family, your father's side's Labour, your mum's side's Conservative, but both those sides of the family supported Brexit. And you're working now at the Financial Times, who wanted us to join the Euro. Your favourite paper. Well, he, he, I mean, look... You have a soft spot for it, Nigel. Well, I have to read something to make me laugh, you know, because they're wrong about everything, aren't they? I mean, you're working for a newspaper whose views are completely different to your background. But I think the thing with the FT, I would say, is, is that I think our straight reporting is very vigorous. And I think we've got correspondents all over the country. And we've had people write on deep social and economic trends in a very clear way. And of course, you know, um, I thought very hard about the Brexit decision. I wrote about that in Broken Heartlands and very much so. Uh, you know, and I said I spent 20 minutes in the polling booth trying to decide. And I would actually have to say, I'd done a Boris Johnson. I wrote two columns for the FT on that day. I wrote a Brexit <laughs> one and a Remain one. And I sat down.
down with a friend and went through it, and I eventually came to my conclusion, which was to reluctantly vote for Remain, and that column was published. But even then, when I went into the ballot box, I really thought quite hard about it, but I did vote for Remain, but uh, unlike some of my other FT colleagues, oh. I didn't back a second referendum. Look, I mean, it was, you know, it, it's been... However, the Financial Times, as a publication online, is a global success story, isn't it? You see, you heard it here first. No, 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 no. I mean, it is doing very well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, hugely. The FT, you know, we've got over 1.1 million digital subscribers now, plus the print paper. And what's been very interesting is that even when I joined the FT in 2016, it was very much a business-to-business -business product, you know, for people in the city, um, in markets, yeah. you need to do that. Now, we've got a huge amount of consumer subscribers, you know, ordinary folks who want to read the app, and we've launched a new FT Edit app, which you can get um, for its £1 a month trial, and you get eight mm, articles a day and it's again that's doing very well so it's it's all gangbusters at the FT and of course the great Saturday column which is lunch with the FT which I did do a few years ago I remember that it was very sober none of these <laughs> it did spark a bit of merriment but no it's interesting Seb because I mean your background in the northeast you know and I know you lost your father when you were quite young who sounds like a bit of a sort of Del Boy character. Absolutely, a lot of wheeling and dealing, the sort of chap I imagine you would have probably gone on quite well with. <laughs> but you go through education in the northeast of England. Why journalism? I think so. I actually was obsessed with computers when I was growing up and I built my first computer when I was six and eventually I studied computer science at university. But about halfway through I realised I actually wasn't that good at it. Uh, and I could see there were many people on my degree who were far smarter than I was and I thought, well actually what I'm really interested in is people. And to me journalism seemed the thing you could do about writing the most about people, what makes them tick. And I'd done a bit of politics at student politics at university and I'd also done media at university. I ran the radio radio station at Durham, wrote for the university newspaper, and so when it came to 2010, I did my first ever work experience at The Guardian, in fact, on their desk, okay. and I went there, and I really enjoyed it, and that was when I went straight up into journalism, and, you know, you've gone from You've gone into journalism, I guess, um, yeah, Lane, yeah. and you know it's fantastically stimulating. You really get to see what makes real people tick and think, as well as what goes on over there. But what goes on over there? with our political class, but there's also a media class. And it's quite interesting, if you actually look now at those on radio, on telly, in the newspapers, online, uh, it is now more dominated by those who come from privileged backgrounds, those, those who've had, you know, very privileged mm. education. Uh, so many have gone to the same university, even got the same degree. Uh, were you a bit of an outsider? I think so. Well, apart from the fact I used to sound a lot more jewelry than I do now. When I first came to London, you could have put me alongside Anton Deck, I think. Whereas when you ah, why have you lost it? Not on purpose. It was just simply when you start doing broadcast and you be surrounded by those media elites you dislike so much, <laughs> uh, it does sort of soft off your vowels because Geordies tend to speak very quickly and not necessarily finish their sentences. And when you try to speak more clearly and slowly, it makes you sound a bit less northern. Um, I've never felt like an outsider. I've been very, very lucky to work at some brilliant publications. I worked at The Spectator, mm. The Daily Telegraph, even The Washington Post, which I'm sure you absolutely love as well, as a newspaper, and the FT. And throughout all that time, no one's ever asked about my accent or my background or anything like that. So I actually feel, you know, I, I wasn't sort of born in the coal bucket, as I write about in the book. I came from a very straightforward middle-class yeah. background yeah. that people were very welcoming, and I've had some amazing opportunities. But, you know, I didn't go to Oxbridge. I didn't go to a public school. And I remember one of my former editors said to me, um, look, every day you're going to be competing with people who have had these amazing top flight educations and you've just got to work harder. And that's what you do, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I've travelled a lot to do on the ground um, shoe leather reporting. One of the reasons that... Which I you love doing, don't you? I remember you coming down, sort of. You were driving a mini round the country. I was, the 2015 that's right. general election, like, got in the mini with you, and you, you really enjoy that going out and, and actually meeting folk on the ground. So I did this when I moved to America in 2014 to work at the Washington Post. I realised they do political journalism entirely differently there to how we do it here. That in America, they, you know, there are people obviously in DC covering the Senate and the White House, but mm. most political reporters go elsewhere. And every Monday morning at the Washington Post, they say, right, what's the theme this week? Immigration. 
integration, right? Seb, you go to North Carolina. Dave, you go to Florida. And then we pulled together a big thematic piece. So when I came back to the UK in 2015, I was like, well, why is no one doing that here? You know, everyone is still based in the parliamentary lobby in Westminster, just focused on doing that. Yeah. So I did the natural thing, which was to put my savings to buying an old red Mini Cooper, which broke down. It broke down on the way to one of your rallies in South Thanet <laughs> in 2015. I can remember a rather angry phone call with you to one of your aides at the time saying, where are you? Why didn't you get the train? And you're like, well, I'm stuck at Medway Services. But the reason I love doing that, Nigel, is that a lot of journalists come to things with preconceived ideas about what matters to people, about where politics are going. And I think the yeah, only way you can yeah. challenge that is by getting out there's and a about. Lot of, there's a lot of groupthink in journalism, and that's why nearly everybody misread the Brexit result. And I remember in 2014, 2015, you know, suddenly UKIP's getting four and a half million votes, four million votes. And I remember saying to people, actually, the backbone of the UKIP vote now in a general election is a Labour vote. Yeah. Nobody believed me. Nobody understood it. You know, I, I went and met newspaper editors. Nobody believed it in this London bubble. But in a sense, this book, this rather important book that you've written, Broken Heartlands, um, and you talk about what's happened to the Labour Party, the disconnect, the deindustrialization of much of the Midlands, of the North and elsewhere. But it wasn't just Boris in 2019, it was happening in 2014, wasn't it? It was, and I remember we spoke for the book yeah. as well, and you mentioned yeah. the Bromley by-election, which you stood in, and yeah. that was when Rachel Reeves, who was obviously now Labour's shadow chancellor, came fourth in that seat, and of course, obviously, Bromley's pretty much as conservative as they come. But that's extraordinary when you think but about it. But there was a Labour vote there, yeah. and they were voting for me. I was the candidate in that by-election. They were voting for me you know, in numbers that she couldn't believe. Yes. And I think what happened was with the big, you know, obviously UKIP's big breakthrough was um, 2009 in those European elections, mm. combined with, obviously, the concerns about migration and the EU as well. And UKIP, as I wrote about in Broken Heartlands, is, was a gateway drug towards going yeah. towards the Conservatives because you broke away those people from Labour who were becoming gradually disaffected it was the direction mm. the party was going. I mm. think Ed Miliband's leadership had an awful lot to do with it, in fact. I think a lot of people looked at Ed Miliband and just thought, he's not a prime minister, he doesn't chime with me. But then they obviously looked at you and what your party was putting forward, and they sort of went off in that direction. But the crucial thing was, after the Brexit referendum, those people who went for UKIP, they didn't go back to Labour. They went to the Tories. So again, it was like a staged process. Yeah. And to those people who say, oh, well, the Red Wall will just go back at the next election, I would say, well, why should it? Because this has been a long process as well. And it's not just these people's views, it's how these places have changed. Because when I was doing the research for Broken Heartlands throughout the pandemic, you know, I was driving around parts of the country I'd never been to, but also parts where I grew up, which I'd not spent a lot of time in over the past decade. And the typical thing for a journalist is to get a train, you go to a town, you go into the Weatherspoons, you find some grumpy people, you, you do a package saying it's all awful, then you go back off. What I did was drive around and you could see the new private housing estates, the out-of-town retail parks, you know, in concert in County Durham, which was mm. home to the famous steelworks. Mm. Uh, the biggest employer there is now a wine warehouse, and it employs people with Beamers and Audis, and the steelworkers didn't have Beamers and Audis for sure. So when we, what, the theory that I came to was, these places have been trending away economically from Labour, and that disaffection which started where they went to UKIP was completed when Boggs boys had that get Brexit done slogan. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've left that tribal route. The question is, they may not all switch back to Labour, and I get that, but I do also think, separate to the Brexit issues, the border issues, the London disconnect issues, oh, and the contempt Labour treated them with, sending Peter Mandelson to Hartlepool, sending um, David Miliband to South Shields. I mean, this was the Labour Party saying, the North East, our backyard, we can put anyone we want up there. Um, and, and, and they did, I think, get treated a bit for that arrogance, really, rather than complacency. But I just wonder, I just wonder, Jeremy Corbyn was a factor too, I think, in 2019. Oh, oops, huge. You know, it was, the things were, it was... Because he wasn't patriotic. And, and one of the things in, about these Red War seats is the fact that a lot of them um, have very strong connections to the armed forces, that a lot of them have mm. army bases, but also mm. the sons of those families go often to the armed forces. And when you saw Mr Corbyn's uh, attitude on um, the police, the shoot-to-kill thing, but also his response to various terror attacks, you know, if you were sort of 
of doing a ladybird book on a candidate to lose the red wall it would be jeremy corbyn every single thing about him would just went exactly about what you would do to lose those seats now obviously keir starmer is very different in a sense because yes you know you would probably describe him as part of the islington lawyer class if i was to take words out of your mouth but he's very tough on law and order former director of public prosecutions, mm -hmm. and has been wrapping himself in the Union Jack. You know, every time Labour gives a press conference, they've almost got more flags than Liz Truss does. Uh, wow, that's saying something, isn't it? It is. Gosh, has he got, has he got an Instagram account as well? <laughs> I expect he probably has. It, it might not be the most interesting Instagram account you no, can see. No, I'm sure it wouldn't be. So they're trying very hard. Do the tour, do the in your view, if the election was going to be this Thursday, mm. there were two by-elections, of course, this Thursday, if the election was this Thursday, would Boris keep the red wall? I think he would keep a chunk of it, but not all of it. And one of the things I defined in the book is there are two types of red wall seats. There's the very urban ones, which includes Wakefield. Uh, and when I spent time in Wakefield, I actually concluded that chapter by saying that's one of the ones that will probably just flip back because it's mm. quite urban. Mm. It's got quite a diverse makeup. Its economy is quite different. Whereas the more rural ones, for example, Burnley and Lancashire, yeah. that's one that's much more difficult. If there was an election tomorrow, I reckon maybe... Could 40%, maybe 50% of them would stay with the Tories. But I think there's not an election tomorrow. There's no. two more years. Yeah. And we'll have to really see, can Boris Johnson deliver on levelling up? Because he made a pledge to those voters on the steps of Downing Street. He said, look, you've put your trust in me. I'm going to deliver that trust. And, you know, they're building some new hospitals and some new yeah. roads and some new ra railways. But fundamentally... Mm. They've not delivered the, the, the high expectations he put no, forward. They no, they haven't. And on that, on Brexit, on many, many things. It's a great book, Broken Heart. It's a very important book. It, it charts what's really happened in the lead-up to that significant 2019 election. It's a great piece of work. Seb, great to have you a guest on Talking Pines. Thank you, really Nigel. Good. Thank you. OK, it's time for Barrage the Farage. I've kept our expert Seb here because I might bring him in if your questions are too difficult. Here goes. Alan says, can you name one promise Boris has made that he's kept? Um, can you help? He said we would leave the EU by the 31st of January 2020, and we did. There we are. Very good. Unlike Theresa May, who said 108 times we'd leave on the 31st of March. Did you count those all personally? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I did. I did. I did. Yeah, not much else, I'm sad to say. Mick asks, should we have a whip round to buy President Biden a three-wheeler? Oh, I like that. That's really, really good. I can't answer it. Um, Rob asks, is Macron in trouble? Well, I think that the, the, the rapid rise of Le Pen's party really has been a big shock to everybody. By the way, I think she will become the French president. I think that dam is actually going to break. And I think the quick thought, the collapse of the Conservative and Labour equivalents in France under first past the post. Astonishing. It's totally extraordinary. And I think a lot of that is the presidential system that forces you eventually into having to make a choice between two options. And the most remarkable thing is how many young people support Marine Le Pen. Because if you look at the Brexit vote here, a lot yeah. of it tended to be no, older I... people. But it's the complete opposite in it France. We, we could talk for hours. We are out of time. But... On that theme we discussed a moment ago, going out round the country, I'm coming to Lincoln on the 30th of June. Coming to Lincoln, 30th of June, Farage at Large. Go to the GB News website to book your tickets. If you don't do it in the next 24 hours, there won't be any seats left, I can promise you. That's it from me this evening. I'll be back with you tomorrow evening here at 7 o'clock. But right now, I'm going to hand you over very capably to Mark Stein. Mm. Hey, thank you, Nigel. Great show. And don't miss that last train home. That was a most revealing clip of uh, Nigel and Stanley Johnson, I thought. Most revealing. On tonight's Mark Stein Show, the controlled demolition of the Western world continues. We've got more on migrants. It pays to be an illegal immigrant rather than a subject of the Crown. You can ask the villagers of North Yorkshire or the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange. Plus, we have some actual good news for you. Don't know how that happened. Probably a typing error. We'll try to ensure that it doesn't happen again. But the good news and the bad all coming up after the weather. Hello, I'm Aidan McGibbon from the Met Office. Skies will stay clear in the south of the UK during the next 24 hours. Cloudier further north with rain for some 
but not a great deal of rain. The cold front that is bringing the cloud and some outbreaks of rain into north of Scotland during the evening and the rest of Scotland and Northern Ireland overnight. Well, that's running into a ridge of high pressure, which holds firm across the rest of the UK. And so the front is weakening. Still, though, northern Scotland likely to see some heavy and persistent rain at times during the evening and the early part of Tuesday. As the rain topples south, it will peter out as it reaches the central belt as well as Northern Ireland, so it will be on and off and mostly light. To the south, across much of England and Wales, a clear night to come with temperatures in the single figures by dawn, even low single figures for some sheltered spots across England. But after a cool start to the day, actually plenty of sunshine for much of England and Wales. Cloudier conditions extending into the far north of England and remaining for Scotland and Northern Ireland. But even here, the skies will brighten. One or two showers for eastern Scotland, the higher parts of northern England, but actually still relatively warm. 21 Celsius there for Glasgow, although the heat really building now across southern and eastern parts of England. 25 Celsius in places by Tuesday afternoon into Tuesday evening and uh, the cloud in the north will tend to break up in places so some clear spells for the central belt for eastern Scotland, northern England and a milder night to come in fact temperatures by day and by night will be rising through the next few days so I think 14 or 15 Celsius for many of us as we wake up on Wednesday. Wednesday's a bright start for much of England and Wales again plenty of sunny skies out there and some decent sunny skies as well for central and eastern Scotland still a bit more cloud towards the west of Scotland Northern Ireland as well and temperatures are rising day by day and it looks likely that by Thursday those temperatures will be peaking in the mid to high 20s in many places perhaps even 30 Celsius. Coming up on Downwards and Tonight with me Patrick Christie's is justice finally on the horizon for victims of child sexual exploitation? Maggie Oliver will be here with the latest on the long-awaited and long-overdue Oldham Review. Plus, my superstar panel, of course, Daily Express columnist Carol Malone, senior reporter of the I newspaper Benjamin Butterworth, and former Brexit Party MEP and political commentator Belinda DeLucy. What's not to love, people? That's Dan Watson tonight, Monday to Thursday, 9pm to 11pm, right here on GB News. Hey, welcome along to tonight's Mark Stein Show. There are two groups of people these days. Uh, one, 
the group you probably belong to. One group gets micro-regulated in every aspect of your life at every turn. The other group has the run of the land and can break all the rules of the land. These are the contradictions of our time and the theme of our show. So on the one hand, we have grooming gangs in Oldham and elsewhere, and refugees from the French Republic, a novel, not to say entirely